I don't know if I'm being cynical um, or not, but it seems to me that there's a growing number of professing Christians whose spiritual life seem to be a bit lethargic. Uh, they seem to be in a spiritual stupor of some kind, uh, living lethargic Christian lives, apathetic towards God and the possibility of a robust relationship with Him. Uh, they seem to be thinking that the relationship with God may not even be probable, uh, at least an important and robust one. I think the spiritual condition creeps in the soul like gangrene creeps into the body. Uh, the person who has once been enthusiastic and energetic towards a deep and passionate life of pursuing God settles in for a mundane, monotonous, kind of dull relationship with Him. These folks don't necessarily deny the reality of God or the merits of having a lively relationship with Him, but they've just lost their spiritual mojo of sorts. They've drifted away from God being their portion in life. They've uh, settled for a cheap substitute that this world might be offering. They've just lost their interest. And they still call themselves Christians, mind you. This morning, you may find yourself in that place or, or sense that you're sliding in that direction, and I want to do my best to alert you to the danger of allowing that stream to cut a channel in your life and to show you the way back to a meaningful and vibrant relationship with God and give you some tools to strengthen your spiritual life because there are tools available. And in fact, in Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64, we see them. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there with me. That is Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64. I'm going to read this portion of Scripture for you and then try to explain it to you and apply it in the way I've suggested. Psalm 119, verse 57 says, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. That's the eighth stanza of Psalm 119. And this stanza speaks as the author begins of God being your portion, God being your all, God being your primary interest in life, your primary pursuit. That's what this stanza is about. And I think it's a, a good segue from the epistle of James where we learned what it meant to be an authentic believer, to determine whether or not our relationship with God was genuine or not. Here we come back into Psalm 119, and this stanza reflects similar concerns. Uh, to begin with, verses 57 through 60, the psalmist talks of making God your portion. If you remember last week I told you, I talked to you about how this would work. He said, if you would like to make God your portion, you must pray for it, strategize for it, and act on it. 
And so I want to remind you again what this idea of making God your portion actually means. When you come to Christ by faith, you are accepting his work, God, Christ's work for you on Calvary. You're accepting his perfect life for you, the, the very life you need to be what God wants you to be. God credits that to your account if you embrace his son, Jesus Christ. That makes God your portion. It is because God, your sins are forgiven. It's because of God you experience mercy and grace. So you, God is your portion in a salvific sense. But when it comes to your relationship with God, it is a different discussion. It is, it is not the same as having God as your portion in salvation. The focus of this particular stanza, the author in these eight verses, is focused on God being your portion relationally. Is God your primary pursuit in life? Or have you come to faith and lost that interest? If in case that you're under the impression that once you come to Jesus by faith, it's smooth sailing from here on out, and you don't have to work on maintaining communion with God or strive to keep him as the center of your affection, let me remind you of the necessary and hard work it is to stay connected to Christ in a relational way. There, if you're truly in Christ, there's no danger of you losing that. I want to make that abundantly clear. But there is a possibility, and I think every Christian in the room knows it, that unless you pursue Christ, that interest fades, right? We need to stay focused on Christ and making him our portion. And so I want to remind you of this necessary work uh, to maintain an active, vibrant, and joyful relationship with God. It's laid out here in Psalm 119, 57 through 64. But to help you see that even the Apostle Paul arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived, how he thought of it. Let me read for you from Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He said, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, speaking of this ideal relationship with God, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus made me his own. He said, Christ has saved my soul. Now, in return, I want to pursue him wholeheartedly. I wanted to make him my portion. And he just didn't say this to the Philippian church. He said it to the Colossians, the Ephesians, and the Romans, and the Thessalonians. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, he says, Set your mind on things above, putting off the old man, putting on the new. Renew your mind, renew your spirit. Pursue God. Colossians, Ephesians. And then to the Roman church in, verse, in chapter 12, he said, Don't be conformed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We heard that earlier. And so, throughout Paul's ministry, this was a primary concern of his. How to keep people who have confessed Christ, who have embraced Jesus, continuing to pursue him with all their heart. You know, we're practical people, aren't we? Once we have something, we think, oh, I don't need to try anymore. It's kind of like men when you got your girl, right? It's like, I got her now. Now what? What are we going to do now? I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to accomplish something great at work. This is why marriages struggle sometimes, right? Unless you work at it, what? <laughs> you lose the passion for it. It's the same in your relationship with God. Now that you have Christ, our tendency is, because we're lazy by nature, is to leave that alone and do something else. Life happens, right? We all get busy. We all have stuff to do. We've got stuff to focus on, things to accomplish. Well, the psalmist here 
knew that about himself. The Holy Spirit knows it about you and me. And so he's laid out here in this stanza, verses 57 through 64, how we can not only get God as our portion, but keep him as our portion, keep him as our passion. So we have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let's assume that is the case with you. And you've claimed God to be your portion. You, you let people know that he is your first love. Then life begins to happen. And to top it off, there's the inevitable opposition that comes from the world in which we live as soon as we make the claim. Right? Once we have, make a resolution to keep God's words, verse 57 says, I promise to keep your words. As soon as we make that resolution, we're going to be put to the test. We will be tested from all sorts of different fronts, but especially by our former fleshly passions to prove whether or not we're going to flinch with making Christ our Lord, flinch in taking up his cross, or continue with him. So when we claim our treasure to be Christ and our home to be heaven, we invite this testing. We invite this reality to come into our experience. It's kind of like those boxers, those MMA fighters, before they get into the ring, they, they talk a lot of smack, they get into each other's faces, but the evidence comes when what happens? The bell rings, right? It's the same way with Christians. We claim Jesus as Lord, we say we're going to follow him, we show up at weekly gatherings with a bunch of other people who say the same thing, but what? The proof comes when the bell rings, when the rubber meets the road, when you leave the building, when you have to get up to go to work, when you have to work late hours or so forth and so on. The, the proof begins when the bell rings. Will we follow? Will we continue to make God our portion? Will we exchange him for a cheap substitute that the world's offering? So how are we going to combat this natural tendency to neglect God as our portion? This natural drift, slipping down this slippery slope of life. Well, verses 61 through 64 tell us how we can keep God our portion. Verses 57 through 60 tell us how we can make him our portion. Verse 61 through 64 tell us how we can keep God as our portion. Are you interested in that? I hope you are. I hope you are, Christian friend, interested in keeping God your portion and not just drifting into a monotonous, boring, pointless Christian life. I hope you'll listen as I try to explain these verses to you. In verse 61, we get the first hint of how we can do this. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. And so what does the psalmist say? The first step is remembering God's word. You want to keep God as your portion? You want to keep Christ central in your mind and heart and your affections? Remember God's word. We're going to encounter opposition to our godly lifestyle for sure. But this verse says, from wicked people around whom we live. Who are these wicked people of verse 61? Are these the, the bad people, the, the devious, vicious, drug-addicted criminals that we can imagine in our minds? Are those the bad people, the, the, the wicked people? Well, as you read through the Psalms, you discover that it's anyone, wicked are anyone, who aren't committed to the same God you are. The wicked people aren't these horrible people out there that we got to avoid like the plague. Wicked people can be people we love, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, even family. There's only two people, two categories on this planet. You know that, right? People who love God and people who don't. 
And so those of us who love God, embrace Christ, who have him as our portion, are opposed by, whether intentionally or not, those who do not claim that of God. And so the, the, the people who this verse is describing are those whose allegiance is to the only king they know, their worldly self. That's it. Who is the world's king? Self is the world's king. Who is our king, at least claim? Christ is our king. Those are the only two options. Listen to what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that's all who desire to have God as their portion, will what? Be persecuted. Who's doing the persecuting? It's the wicked people of Psalm 119.61. It's those folks. And they're not, they're not the horrible people I was describing. They're neighbors. And you're thinking, what, what's going on here? Well, it's this world in which we live. This world is possessed by the great enemy, the devil, and all those who aren't committed to Christ and his kingdom, his values, his priorities. And I don't think it's fair for us to expect those who don't possess the Spirit of God to appreciate his kingdom. We can't expect that. But what we can expect is some ensnaring that's described here in verse 61. And that ensnaring that they do may or may not be intentional. The point is that the natural man doesn't value what the godly man does, and hence they pursue things that would be a snare to us. It's not like they're out to get you, necessarily. It's that they just value different things. And that could snare you, is what the psalmist is saying. So the first thing that we can do to guard our hearts, to keep God central in our affections, is to remember his word. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. And remember the synonyms? There's eight synonyms. God's law is just a synonym for God's word. Okay? So he says, I simply remember God's word. That's the first thing I do to maintain God as my portion, to continue to pursue Christ with my whole heart. What's it mean to remember God's word? It means to saturate your minds with the Bible. When, when we do not forget God's law, we remember it, we read it, we study it. It reinforces, that is, the word of God reinforces the loving truths of God to our minds. It reminds us to look for the eternal and the unseen as our hope instead of the physical and temporal. Remembering God's word simply reminds us of, of why God is our portion. Why should I continue to pursue God with all my heart? God's word tells you why. Psalm 34, it's not on the overhead, so you may want to look this up. We, we used it in our liturgy earlier in the day. But here are some reasons why we read God's word. Verse 4 of Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Does it sound good to you? Yeah. How about this one? Verse 6, the poor man, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That sounds good to me also. How about this one, verse 8? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed or happy is the man who takes refuge in him. I need to know that when I'm in trouble. How about this, verse 10? The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Are you lacking something good, Christian friend? Where are you looking for the answers? You see, that's why we remember God's word. We go back to the word, to the source, to the place where we find the answers we need, you need, I need. 
when the Apostle Paul was faced with choosing between what the world offered and what God offered, he resoundingly responded in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Listen to this, see if it's unclear to you. But whatever gain I had, that is the worldly offerings, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. God was his portion. And everything else in comparison to that was what we're going to read in a second. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, in Paul's mind there was really no comparison. There was no comparison. So the question I need to ask you is how do you respond when you are being ensnared or on the doorstep of being ensnared? How do you respond? Is your tendency to, to give in? to run with the crowd, or to defend yourself, or to get angry, or go to some worldly outlet, or what? How did David respond in the story we heard from 1 Samuel 30? Did he, what did he do? It says, you remember that story he, he, that we just heard read earlier. The Amalekites came, burned down his city, took all of his children and all the wives of all the men, and they were ensnared. They were in a bad situation. On top of that, what happened? David's men talked of stoning and killing him because of what had happened. So he was ensnared from without and from within. And this is a wonderful verse. Verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, as you can imagine. For the people spoke of stoning him because of all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters that they had lost. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What an amazing thought that is. So instead of focusing on the external things that were causing him stress, he went to God. That's the point here. We need to do the same. Get godly perspective from Scripture. When you're being ensnared, when things are going against you, get godly perspective. And here is some that I thought would be used to some of you, because I know some of you are going through some things. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. So we do not lose heart. Though outwards, our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How's that for godly perspective? It continues. For this light momentary affliction, and it's light and momentary, what you, whatever you're going through, according to Paul, is light and momentary. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Light and momentary, eternal Keep this in mind. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's your perspective. Friends, whatever it is you're going through is temporary. It's light compared to the eternal weight. It's a comparison game Paul wants us to think about. Where is this coming from? The Word of God. Remember the Word of God. You want to keep God your portion, your love, your centerpiece? Remember His Word. This obviously means you have to open it, right? When we're saturated with God's word, we're reminded of the important things and our intense need for God. So if you've been drifting away, slipping down, sensing your loss of interest in the things of God, a neglect of his word is the likely culprit. Please don't be surprised if you're feeling spiritually weak when you're not eating spiritual food. Look at the second thing he says. You want to keep God as your portion? Not only remember God's word, but 
Praise God at all times. Verse 62. At midnight. That's an inconvenient time. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Righteous rules again is a synonym for the word of God. But he praised him at all times for all things, good and bad. It seems that the regular daily prayers were not enough for this godly man. Since God was his satisfying portion, he'd like to get up at midnight to worship and fellowship with God. Now, evidently, from these verses we read, there's no restriction to how much God we can intake. We can go out from at midnight. We can take in too much caffeine, which might be a reason you're up at midnight. You can take in too much sugar, salt, carbs. We can, we've heard we can even exercise too much. It's not my problem, but I hear it's possible. <laughs> you can even drink too much water, I've heard. But you can never get too much God. Why? Because he's infinite. He is infinite. He's always more available to you. There's no limit. And here's an interesting element of our relationship with God. Finding our joy and fulfillment in Christ. As he satisfies us, in the middle of his satisfaction of us, he gives us more desire for himself. So the more you get, the more you want of God. What a wonderful arrangement that is. God prompts us, moves us towards him being our portion. It's like running downhill for the Christian. What a wonderful blessing from God. The central element of the psalmist's midnight worship was what? Can you see it there in the verse? What was the central element of his worship? Wasn't it God's word? He picked it up. It was part of what his routine was at midnight. He opened the book and carefully read and rejoiced in God's love. And one of the reasons we never seem to have enough of God or enough joy in God is because he created us to simultaneously experience fullness and hunger, quenching and thirst. God wants you to have both. He's not going to fill you to such a degree that you never want to come back. He's going to satisfy you and in the satisfaction bring you more, a desire for more. He, he, this psalmist wasn't required to get up at midnight to worship. His motivation to get up at midnight was not to make sure the doors were locked or to check his bank account or to get a snack, but to praise the Lord. He wasn't afraid of his circumstances. He just wanted more God. And whenever he woke up, God was there. And so he took advantage of it. His new and enlarged, regenerated heart drew him Godward. You know, typically Jewish people were required to pray at least three times a day, uh, sometimes five times a day, depending on the season. The author of Psalm 119, it says in verse 164, prayed at least seven times a day, not including this midnight prayer. And we, at least me, struggle to have one prayer time a day and wonder why we're losing the spiritual mojo. I think those two things are connected. I think it's important to take note that these midnight prayers of praise are in the context of hardship. Verse, what is it? 
though the cords of the wicked ensnare me. Verse 61. In the context of being ensnared, in the context of struggle and hardship, his first move is Godward. You've woken up at odd hours of the night, haven't you? One o'clock, what's the first thing on your mind? Is it prayer and praise, opening the scriptures and worshiping God, or is it worrying about your bills or your kid or something else? That seems to be our tendency, doesn't it? But you know what? One way to keep God our portion is this very thing he's doing. Pursue him. Pursue God in those hours all the time for all reasons, good or bad. Make him your focus. The author is praising God for his circumstances no matter what they are. How can he do this? He's doing this because what he reads in the righteous rules reminds him of God's goodness and love. How do God's righteous rules, God's word, motivate the midnight praise in the face of difficulty? What does God's word say about difficulty? We all know the answers to this if you've been here during the study of James. What do hard times bring? What do trials bring to the Christian? Isn't it spiritual growth, maturity, fullness? Yeah, we know that. But also beyond that, we read that God is especially near in hard times. So we know that hardships conform us to the image of Christ, but also it's in hardship that God seems to be the nearest to us. Remember Paul and Silas? What time of the day was it when they were worshiping in jail? Midnight again. Yeah. You see, God reveals himself in his word, especially when we're going through hard times. Listen to this uh, passage from Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. It says, right? No, rejoice in the Lord always, even at midnight when you wake up a little bit concerned about things. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Is it possible that it's reasonable to rejoice always? I think that's what he's saying. <laughs> if you think about who God is, it's always reasonable to rejoice, even in your hardships, even at midnight. And then he says this. This also ties right in. Don't be anxious about anything. Who are you discovering God is as you open his word at midnight? He's a faithful God, a loving God, who takes care of us, his children. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he throws this in, in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we should remember the word of God. We should rejoice at all times for all things. And thirdly, verse 63, it says we should befriend godly people. You see that? I'm a companion of all who fear you. Those are my companions, people who love God people who desire to have him as their continual portion. Those are the kind of people I want to be with who will help me do that. 
Have you noticed that you're drawn to those people who love the Lord Jesus? Have you noticed that? If you're in union with Christ, you are by nature in union with those who are also in Christ. If you're a believer, you are spiritually drawn to other believers by necessity. Of course, we have to engage with many who do not know Christ. We have jobs, right? We live here. And there's value to, to engaging with them. But the genuine Christian feels a sense of joy when they encounter a fellow believer. Have you noticed that? Part of the reason that we experience a joyful response is, is because the company of Christians is designed by God to bring spiritual refreshment, spiritual nurture and strength. And one of our goals as believers is to lift the hearts of other believers, build one another up, pray for one another, encourage one another. All these one another's in the New Testament we come across are designed for this reason, to help you pursue Christ, to make God your portion. So it may never be that we would be the cause of spiritual discouragement or distraction to other Christians. Jesus said it would be better that you would have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the closest sea than to lead a believer astray. I've heard it's hard to swim with a millstone tied to your neck. The communion of saints, of course, is the fruit and effect of communion with God. So are you in communion with God? Then you will also by nature be in communion with other believers who will help you in your communion with God. I think it's very important to remember that our most important relationships must be with those who love Jesus. To have your confidant or your source of encouragement, your source of wisdom, your source of joy, your source of friendship, camaraderie, having that from coming from outside the family of God is dangerous, if not sinful. And the reasons, I think, are clearly evident. Charles Bridges, in his commentary on Psalms, wrote that that kind of a situation where you gain your your wisdom, your encouragement, your source of hope from outside the family of God. He said, that is a hazardous, a hazardous atmosphere. I really enjoyed the way he said that. So, where are you gaining most of your friendships? Where, where, is, where do you, your close friendships come from? The psalmist says they need to be from the family of God. I am a companion to all who fear you. You want to keep God your portion? Befriend those who have the same goal. Now, this does not mean that we shouldn't have unbelieving friends. We should. We should have unbelieving friends, unbelieving close friends. It just means that we should prioritize our friendships carefully. You might say, well, <laughs> Pastor John, if you knew my Christian acquaintances, uh, how weird and annoying they are, you would appreciate my lack of interest. Well, that may be true and felt mutually, by the way, uh, but it's actually a part of what it means to be in the family of God. We are all different by design. We're different from one another in many different ways, but one of the virtues of being in Christ is that we no longer require affinity with others to experience Christian fellowship, to value 
the, the benefit of the differences that we experience. To love one another. In fact, there is a good reason to question whether or not it's truly love if all you ever do is hang around people that are just like you. If your circle of friends, even at church, all look like you and smell like you and walk like you, is that truly love? Doubtful. One wonderful beauty of the church of God is that as a whole, that is as a total group of Christians, we picture Jesus Christ to one another and to this world. That's something that we cannot do separately. Unfortunately, no one in this room in and of themselves can be an accurate picture of Christ. That is our goal, that is our strive, that's, that's what's going to ultimately happen to us. We will be one day conformed to his image. In the meantime, it takes us as a group to represent Christ accurately to one another and to the world. The way I get a picture of Christ is by seeing your mercy, your kindness, your goodness, your patience. And by putting those all together, I see Jesus. Under this point, I want to suggest that we need to be sure, even within the church, that we befriend those who will help us along that path of sanctification, along that pursuit of making God our all in all. We need to have strategic relationships here in this church. So, do you have relationships that encourage, challenge, and strengthen your spiritual life in this church? You must. Back to Psalm 30. Do you remember how that psalm ended? That, not Psalm, I'm sorry. 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel 30 and verse 26 when after all this was said and done, David rescued his family and the families of all of his army, and all that was recovered. You know, the pressure was off. It says this interestingly in verse 26, when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah. You know why that's interesting? He had strategic friendships. David was concerned about pursuing God. He cared that his friends encouraged that in him. And so he maintained a group of friends who required him to pursue God with all of his heart. That he knew wouldn't let him get away with stuff. These were his friends, the elders of Judah. Who are your friends? Even in this, even in this room. Do they push you towards Christ? We must, friends, push one another towards Christ. That is the point of our fellowship. It's the point of our church. Please make deep, meaningful connections with believers that will do that for you and that you will do for them. And the final thing we see to keep God as our portion is seen in verse 64. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Look for God's loving activity in your life. Teach me your statutes, Lord. God's love for all of his creation is obvious. It's everywhere. The psalmist is praying to see more of it every day. Teach me these things, God. The earth is full of your steadfast love. I want to see it. 
even though humanity for the most part remains in rebellion against God, his love remains on display, even in nature. He provides for the needs of his creation even down to the smallest detail. Ants have stuff to eat. That's how detailed God is about caring for his creation. He actually loves ants. So even though we as the the pinnacle of his creation are in rebellion against him as a, as a whole, his love remains on display through Christ towards us. Listen, listen to these verses from the Psalms. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. And who knows this better than today's Christian? <laughs> how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Psalm 145, 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing, including you and me. Psalm 36, 6 through 8. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Does that sound good to you? That's why the psalmist says, teach me your statutes in verse 64. I want to experience that, God. Help me grow in grace. Help me to see your love in everything. Help me to see more of your handiwork in my life in in all the life around me. Help me to see all the circumstances of my life as from your loving hand. God, help me connect the spiritual dots in my life. Consume my heart. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Friends, the greatest demonstration of the steadfast love of God, of course, is seen in the life and death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Is he your portion? Are you making sure of that? Are you taking in his word? Are you praising him in all seasons of life, good and bad? Are you making the appropriate friendships that will help you follow Christ wholeheartedly? Are you growing in grace? This is what it means to have God as your portion. This is what the psalmist has laid out for us clearly here in this stanza. What a blessing. God cares so much for us. Not only does he provide a savior, he gives us a path to follow. He goes, I'll save you, I'll forgive your sins, I'll grant you mercy and grace, I'll even make a path for you right here. You just put one foot in front of the another. What a Savior. Let's pray and ask God that he will do this for us. Lord Jesus, what a Savior you are for us. Those who don't deserve your mercy and grace... And yet, gratefully receive it. I ask God that 
you would be gracious, merciful towards those in this room this morning. That we would not neglect the word. That we would not forget to praise you in all seasons of life. That we would pursue godly friendships and, and do every, everything we can to grow in grace. God, we want you to be our portion. I know at times we don't live like it. I know at times we fail in our efforts. But God, because of your grace and mercy, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and those people you love and save, I know that we will be successful in pursuing this. God, I pray that you would have a special hand of blessing on the people in this room, in this church, as we pursue to make you our portion. Help us not be distracted by this world who's always trying to offer us a substitute for you. Help us not be fooled. Bless us now, Father, as we go our way, as we again get up, dust ourselves off, and follow you wholeheartedly. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.